You know, we're, we're not going to be talking about Matthew 25, or at least not very much this morning. But I wonder if you ever thought about that question that Jesus asked when he says, when, where they asked him, uh, when did we see you naked and thirsty and estranged and in as a prisoner? Did you know there was a time that we saw him like all those things, like everything else that he talks about, it ultimately finds its richest fulfillment on the cross. He was the naked, thirsty, estranged prisoner for us. But that's not what we're talking about today, at least not directly. So today we're going to kick off a series um, that I'm super excited about. I love this. We're going to do a a bit of a mini-series in the Psalms. um, And it's going to be an Advent series, which technically isn't today. So next week we're going to start Advent. Today, though, is kind of like a prologue or a prequel to it. Because I want, to, I want to show you something about how we should read and understand the Psalms that I think will kind of help us to understand the rest. I'll help us understand that series and really all of the Psalms as you read them. Um, we're going to look at one Psalm in particular this morning. Uh, but we're really going to try to look at like all 150. Okay. So all at once. And then next week and then a couple weeks after that, we're going to look at three Psalms that I think are particularly relevant during Advent um, as we anticipate and wait for Christmas. But as I said, first, all of them, because there's something really important. Um, but I don't think it's broadly known about the Psalms that I would love you to kind of like tuck away and remember for the rest of your life. Okay, here it is. The Psalms are not a bunch of one-offs. They're not just a bunch of rando passages all glued together. But rather, they form a coherent whole. They're prayers, but they're prayers that tell a story, a single story, a great meta-story. And the story begins, as you might expect it to, in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, we get introduced to the main characters, and we learn something about the general plot line. Psalm 1 famously begins, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. And it goes on to describe him as one who is like a tree planted by streams of water. He flourishes. Everything he does prospers. That's our first character. The second character, though, the contrast, is the wicked. And they are like chaff that the wind blows away. They perish. In our story, one character is going to flourish, prosper, and enter into unimaginable and enduring happiness. The other will come to nothing. But it's a story with twists and turns. The good guy is not going to have an easy life. This, this expectation of prospering, flourishing life, not every day, not even close. And sometimes the wicked seem to get the upper hand. Like it doesn't make any sense that the, the righteous suffer and the bad guy is like flourishing. Like what is up with that? And so there's great suffering throughout the story. There's also a search for a king that just permeates the book of Psalms. Um, that shows up in the second psalm. The first one is introduction to this character. And the second one describes this king. And he keeps poking his head up throughout the whole Psalter. Um, and there are hints that there is some royal person who is going to get everything right. He is glorious. He is the great one that we long for. And there was also throughout the book a, a theme of a recurring need for grace, for help, and for rescue. There's confusion, there's hope, there's joy, and there's lament. But here's the thing I want you to get because this is so important if you're going to make sense of the Psalms. The story ends well. It ends unbelievably well. There's 150 Psalms. And if you, go, if you just flip to the end of it, you don't need to do that now, but if you go to the 150, 
It's all praise. 149, all praise. 147, 146. I thought I skipped 148. The whole thing, it just ends in all of the sadness and all of the difficulty and all of the confusion and all of the lament. It's just forgotten. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And the story ends in praise. It ends incredibly well. And that's important to us because for all the turmoil and the conflict, the story of our life, if a couple things are in place, is going to end beautifully. And this is what we need to know. All the misery is lost. Now, we're going to just drop in and we're going to look at one particular psalm today. And then we'll look at a few more um, in December. But when we do, I want you to keep one fundamental interpretive rule in mind. This is true for the series and it's true anytime you're in the psalms. And it's namely this. That the person who is depicted as praying any particular psalm must also be understood as having gone through what happens in all of the other psalms. There is no cherry picking. We don't get to skip to the happy ending. And happily, none of us get stuck forever in the sad places. Each song or each prayer, each psalm is like a measure of the total score. And y'all, we need to hear the whole thing. And whatever part of the story we happen to be in this morning here as we're studying it, and maybe even more importantly, whatever part of the story you happen to be in your actual real life, remember, the end of the journey is praise. The story ends well. For those who delight in the Lord and his word, the story ends unbelievably well. Okay, one more thing, and then we'll kind of jump in. It's a long story. It's a really long story. It's even longer than your whole life. If you just think the story's got to fit in from your birth to your death, um, I think you'll be disappointed. Because the story spans from the creation of the world to the recreation of the world to come. And the promises that God makes in the Psalms will not fit into the 70 or 80, heck, 100 years that you're going to get. It will take all of eternity for him to make you as happy as he means you to be. And if you end your story the story of your life at your death, you might be dismayed at what appear to be unkept promises. So stay in the game. This life is just a fraction of the whole. It is a fraction that matters. It matters a great deal. In fact, it is the fraction that determines all the rest, but it's just a fraction. We need to recognize that the story arc includes this life and the life to come. And this weekend, we're going to drop in kind of right into the middle of the Psalms into a really weird, weird place. There's, the Psalms break into five different books. And the place that, we're, that I want us to kind of focus and think about today and then also next week is this weird section from Psalm 88, 89, 90, and 91. Um, 88 is bar none, the lowest point in the Psalms. It is just the most discouraging and, and discouraged passage. The whole thing is bad. It does not end good. There is no resolution. In fact, the, the last line goes like this. The last verse of Psalm 88 says, um, you have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. And the curtain drops, okay? It is the lamentiest lament of all the laments. Psalm 89, however... Uh, which is what we're going to look at next week, kind of comes out of this horrible cellar of Psalm 88, and it's incredibly cheerful. The first half is all positive. It's all God's promises. Everything's going to be amazing. It's great. And then right in the middle, bam, it just has this horrible shift, and you get whiplash from it. And then it drops back into very 88-ish vibe. 
It's a psalm of discouragement. That God, you said, and yet you have, and I don't understand what's going on here. Psalm, psalm 90, um, we looked at that um, this summer. It's a, basically about what the righteous pray for in the midst of tragedy. Um, and we're not going to look at that this, uh, during this series. It's great, but we don't have time for it. Psalm 91 is where we finally are going to be this morning. Okay? Now, Psalm 91, I want to show it to you because it's a really important part of the story, and it gives us some clues to how do we understand the, the whole thing. Um, Psalm 91 is such an absolute counterpoint to the seller of Psalm 88 that it's really hard to know what to do with it. It's incredibly positive, unbelievably optimistic, and you read it, you're like, okay, I don't know how that, any of that can possibly be true because I've actually lived in this world for more than a week. Like, what do I do with this? And it's a particular psalm that is really ripe for misuse, to, for, for misunderstanding, and even maybe abusive language. It's gotten a lot of um, uh, attention this summer because it talks about pestilence and plague and 2020, and it's all kinds of things that are just like relevant to us. Um, but when you see the enormity of the promises that are in this psalm, I think you're going to see why we can kind of misuse it. So there's, a, there's a couple ways it goes. Because it's so outlandish in its promises, some might say, well, I'm invincible. Like, I'm, a, I'm bulletproof. All of, all of this psalm is telling me is that, like, nothing bad can ever happen to me. And therefore, I don't need to wear a seatbelt because I'm bulletproof, right? Or maybe a little more relevant. Like, I don't need to follow any of the governor's orders. I don't need to wear a mask. I don't need to do anything because I have this invisible Christian cloak of invincibility and I'm totally untouchable. Okay, that's a common way that people might use this psalm. The other thing of it is that you look at somebody and they are suffering. This promised blessing of protection isn't playing out in somebody's life. So that must mean that they did something to deserve it. Because this says that if you are with him, if you are walking with God, no harm will befall you. And so when I see bad things happening in your life, I'm like, well, I don't know what you did, but you did something, right? See how that, how that can kind of play out? So as we go through it, I want you to kind of see what it is, we want to try to avoid both of those errors. We don't want to say, tell people that are suffering that they're under the curse of God. And we don't want to be foolish in the way that we live. So take it, well, I'll read it to you. As we go through it, remember the structure here. First two verses are just a confession. It's like this statement of like, this is great news. It's a confessional statement. The second chunk from verses 3 to 13 is basically the meat of it. And it's all these claims, all these claims of protection and provision. And that runs to kind of 3 to 13. And then the very end of it, the Lord finally speaks. And he hasn't spoken for for like psalms and psalms and psalms. It's been silent. And then finally he speaks here and he gives this confirmation and he locks this thing down, okay? So the confession, the claims, the confirmation, I'll walk you through it here and then we'll, we'll see what it means. This is Psalm 91. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That's your confession. Here are the claims. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you'll find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it won't come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. 
for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And then the Lord speaks and says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Okay, now, as I said, this sucker is, so, is ripe for misuse, so much so that it actually gets misused in the Bible itself. It gets quoted wrongly and applied wrongly in the scriptures. Any idea where? Anybody, did anybody recognize a phrase there? You're like, oh, I remember hearing that someplace else. Gil, do you know? Boom, when the devil is exactly right. Well done. So in Matthew 4, when Jesus goes into the, into the wilderness and he's fasting and he's praying, Satan shows up and tempts him. This is what he quotes. Psalm 91 is excellent work. Okay, so listen to what he says. This is uh, Matthew 4, verses 5 to 6. It says, Then the devil took him, that's Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91, it's verse 11 and 12. And Satan is saying, test it, go ahead, put God to the test, do something really stupid, and see if he shows up. And the subtext is, and if he doesn't, if he doesn't rescue you, if Psalm 91 turns out to be a lie, worship me instead. And of course, Jesus doesn't take the bait, but it does leave us with a question. Well, if Satan is using this, misusing it, how should I understand it? Like, what does it mean? If it doesn't mean this carte blanche, jump off a cliff and trust that, you know, God's going to catch you, what on earth does it mean? What promises can we take from it? And I would suggest to you much that we need Psalm 91. We need to know what it says. But if we're going to get it right, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to remember the big arc, okay? You've got to see this is part of this total storyline, this great arc that is all of the Psalms all put together. And when you look at it, remember, this thing starts off, Psalm 1, by saying, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This is that one He's like a tree that flourishes, whose leaf doesn't wither, that everything he does prospers. That story that starts there in Psalm 1 and goes all the way to this great ending, this eruption of praise and glory, the whole thing is first, chiefly, and primarily about one man. The whole thing. For there is one man who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, there is one man who fulfills the longing throughout the Psalms for a righteous king. And there is one man who truly and deeply and ardently actually adores and praises the Father for whom all of these Psalms of praise are not hyperbole. We might read them, we might quote these Psalms of praise, but it's like, do you really feel that way? Because I feel like there's an awful lot of things that we love more than we love him. There is one man who endured the grief and the suffering and the abandonment such that the Psalms of Lament are not an exaggeration. They're about him. He guys, all of the Psalms and each of the Psalms make the most sense 
and find their application in our lives when we first properly locate them in Jesus' life. Because they're about him. This whole thing is about him. They become meaningful to us only really after we understand our union to him, when we understand that he is the main character in this great story. They're about him, but they come to be about us when we link our lives to him. And so, with that understanding, it kind of makes it worse, actually. Psalm 91 is a promise of blessing and protection to a man who wasn't protected at all. I mean, not even a little bit. He was, in fact, cursed. For cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So check this out. We saw that Satan came and he quotes this psalm to Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4. And he basically gives it to him as a taunt. He says, jump, come down from the temple if you are the son of God. If you're the son of God, come on down. I wonder if you ever noticed that that exact same taunt, phrase for phrase, is picked up at one other time in Jesus' life. As he hangs on the cross, bearing the sin of the world, the religious leaders gather around him and they echo Satan. They repeat what Satan said and they say, if you are the son of God, come down from there. It's in Matthew 24. started in Matthew 4. It ends up in Matthew 27, excuse me. The chief priests are the ones that pick up the taunt and they're quoting yet another psalm, Psalm 22, because the whole thing is about him. And they say this, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. So here's the question, you guys. How does a psalm promising perfect protection find fulfillment in the life of a man who is falsely accused and maligned and beaten and cruelly murdered, gruesomely murdered, despite his flawless, perfect innocence. How does that work? The answer is that it only works if you take the long view. Because Jesus' life did not end in death, right? He does die in the middle, but he triumphs in the end. In fact, this story is never going to end. His life for all of eternity, eternity will be one of triumph and victory. It doesn't end. He will persist in total dominion with highest joy forever and ever. Because he took the lowest place, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at his name every knee should bow. And for all eternity, he will reign over the cosmos as king, worshipped by the subjects who adore him and whom he invites, this is insane, but whom he invites to reign with him. And you guys, if you will link your life to his, you will not only have his providential care in this life, in this broken world in which you are bound to nevertheless face troubles, but you will also reign with him someday on this planet when he returns to earth, raises us from the dead, and turns this into a world of infinite joy and endless happiness. Jesus said something that was so interesting in Matthew 10. He said, listen, don't fear those who can only kill the body, but after that can do no more. It's not that big of a deal. Instead, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. 
He's saying that the, pest, the, the, the protection that you need most of all is not from pestilence or plague. It's not from COVID. It's protection from the wrath to come. We read these passages, Psalm 95. You may have noticed it's like a downer morning, right? Psalm 95 and Matthew 25 both have significant language of judgment. That's because the judgment is a real thing. And the most urgent, compelling need in your life is to be rescued from it. That is, that's where all, that's where everything hangs. And you guys, you probably won't get COVID. Probably not. But you might, right? And if you do, if you take refuge in him, he'll walk with you through it. That walk may end in death. It may not, probably not, but it might. But either way, if you are in him, then real safety, the actual safety that you most desperately need is yours. Because you guys, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he wasn't just becoming king. He certainly did that. But he was also absorbing into himself all of the badness of everything we have ever done so that there would be no wrath left for you. And it is exceptionally good news. All goodness and all protection and all joy was purchased by him when he was utterly unprotected. When there was no hint of Psalm 91 in his life. He was presumed guilty by a hateful world who poured on him all the badness that they could. And if you are united to him and this blessed life of Psalm 1 that is his by right can become yours by gift, which is exceptional. And that, my friends, is the story that the Psalms are telling. That he will give it all to you. It's the story that the scriptures are telling. And you guys, it's a story that ends unbelievably well. The Psalms end in praise. And if you are in him, the ultimate destination of your journey is exactly the same. There will be, to be sure, some rough spots along the way. Some of you know this all too well. But if you keep your eye on the prize and link your life to his, then all of these promises will be fulfilled in the big, big ark. That is what the Psalms are telling us. That the story ends well. So next week, we're going we're gonna to get into this concept of the wait because the reality is we have to wait for the happy ending. And a lot of stuff is going to go down before we get there. And that's what Advent is all about, the long wait, the seemingly interminable wait for the happy ending, which we'll we'll begin to explore that next week. We're going to be in Psalm 89, which is that whiplash one. It starts off amazing, then it like crashes. If you want to kind of read ahead and get kind of soak in that a little bit, that might help you get the most out of our conversation next week as we're in Psalm 89 and the wait, the long wait for the unbelievably happy ending. Okay? That's where we're going. So let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we don't like to wait. We want it all right now. But we thank you that in your wisdom and in your providence, you have reasons for the wait. Lord, you give us wisdom even to understand that when sometimes it is really dismaying to us. And I pray that in this Advent season, this season of the wait, you might give us the grace to wait with hope and cheerfulness and trust with whatever you're putting in our path today, whether it is a day of sunshine and just obvious happiness or day that is dark, would you give us the courage to trust you for a story that ends well? We love you. Amen.